morning. Welcome to Houghton Wesleyan Church. Would you stand with me this morning and join in our responsive call to worship? Christ died for all in order that they who are alive may live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. If then we are in Christ, we are new creations. The former things have passed away. Behold, they are made new. For you were once in darkness, but now you are the light of the world. If we die, we die to the Lord. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Please pray with me. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, early in the morning, let our songs rise to you. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, you, our God, in three persons, blessed Trinity. Move among us today, Lord. Help us worship you in spirit and truth. Amen.
Before you're seated, share a word of greeting, a word of peace with others who are here in worship today. It's a great joy to come together and worship, and it's great to see you as we gather together. As always, there are many things happening in the life of our church outside of what we do here on Sunday morning, and the bulletin contains a number of announcements about those. There are a couple of things happening today that I want to be sure to bring to your attention. As many of you know, uh, Pastor Todd will be completing his ministry with us at the end of May, and uh, we will... Uh, do some things to help to honor them uh, the last Sunday they're here. But we wanted to have an opportunity before uh, the semester ended at the college to have an, a chance to uh, share our appreciation with them and give you a chance to do that. And so this afternoon from 2 to 4, uh, they'll be in the community room. We're having a come-and-go reception for you to uh, just to share with uh, with them what their ministry has meant to you and, and uh, just to share our appreciation as a congregation to them. And tonight we will be gathering back here at 6 o'clock for a time of worship together. Our intern, Stacey Hinderleiter, will be preaching tonight. And uh, we'll be done at, six, at 6.45 and then at 7 o'clock uh, you can have time to go to Koinonia if you desire to do that. Next Sunday morning we gather for worship again at 8.20, 9.40, and 11. There are a couple of inserts in your bulletin. Uh, one of them is about uh, children's ministry opportunities for this summer. And uh, children's church and Sunday school. And if you have uh, the time and uh, you would like to be involved in the ministry, that would be terrific. Our children would appreciate it. Uh, it's a great outlet for you to share uh, your faith in Christ with others, especially our young ones. So if you could do that, you can just drop that in the offering plate a little bit later. Or you can get it to the church office and we will contact you about that. The other insert is uh, a very colorful one about uh, another prayer event that we're hosting uh, beginning this Friday morning at 6 and concluding Sunday at 6 for 48 hours, we will be focusing a uh, concentrated time of prayer for our graduates, high school graduates and college graduates. And so we, we would love to have you sign up for a time. You can do that this morning before you leave in the back foyer to sign up for an hour or more if you want to uh, primarily pray for graduates. Feel free to come and pray about other burdens and concerns, but we want to focus on praying for our graduates. We'll have uh, a list of of names of all the graduates, and uh, also um, we will have prayer concerns that have been given to us by graduates that uh, you can pray about. And so we we want to um, bathe them in our prayers. And so we would love to have you be a part of this 48-hour time of prayer. You can sign up this morning or anytime online uh, through the church website. There are, uh, of course, always prayer concerns that uh, some things very close to us, others more distant, but situations that we know God cares about and we place them into his hands. Good morning, I'm Daryl Stevenson. I currently chair as vice chair of the elders board. Those of you who watch TV probably have had the experience of a commercial where the 
the person uh, buying a particular item steps up to the cashier, and just at that point in time, the confetti starts to fall, the balloons come down, the bands begin to play because it's the one millionth customer of that particular store. We probably have uh, experienced something like that or seen something like that. Certainly a big moment in that store and in that person's life. Years ago, many years ago, in Joshua, the account of fourth chapter talks about leaving a pile of stones to mark events that occur in the history of its people. And we have a pile of stones out here that we've uh, created for other purposes, for another time. Well, this morning, according to our resident uh, church historian, uh, Dean Littick, we have another moment that we want to mark. This morning, the Houghton Wesleyan Church has a moment as we look back on our 160 years of history of this particular church in this little village. We have 78 years who have gone by uh, since this building was built and dedicated back in 1934. And there have been more than 30 pastors who have uh, been in charge of this congregation. And many people, of course, thousands of people have worshipped here over those years under those pastors. But this morning, we are led in worship by a, a now longer-serving pastor of this church, uh, Pastor Wes Oden. Pastor Cindy and Wes have now served this church longer than Reverend J.R. Potts, or Pitts rather, in 1921 through 1937, those 16 years. And this spring marks the beginning of the 17th year of the service of uh, Pastors Cindy and Wes. So we'll mark this moment with imagined confetti and balloons blowing all around us and maybe a pile of stones here in front of us as we will uh, talk further about this, by the way, in a future highlights. And so you can look forward to that probably in the month of June. And I think it's entirely fitting that you warmly thank them for their service as I ask them to come forward and just stand before the altar rail here. ago in his letter of challenge for the future in our sesquicentennial booklet, Pastor Wes wrote this. The challenge for us is not only to explore and to understand the past, but to move forward. The God who inspired, strengthened, and empowered our spiritual ancestors is the same God who desires to inspire, strengthen, and empower us. Though it may be difficult to comprehend at times, his plans for us are just as grand and far-reaching as were his plans for them. At this time of celebration and remembrance, the challenge is clear. Are we ready to move forward? Are we willing to risk? Are we committed to God and to one another in ways that enable us to inspire those who will look back on our lives and on our decisions as the people of the Houghton Wesleyan Church? That excerpted from a larger letter in that sesquicentennial booklet. So we'd like to have the pastor in Cindy, Pastors Wes and Cindy uh, kneel at this altar. I've asked one of our former vice chairs of the elder board, Bob Danner, to come and just lay his hands on them. And we'll pray with and over them as a congregation this morning. As we uh, ask God's continued blessing in their service to us, 
for our continued commitment uh, to them as we uh, seek their leadership in the ever-widening and varied ministries of this church. And I'm also going to ask you to pray a personal prayer this morning of your own personal commitment to the, uh, the nature of this church, to the encouragement and uh, support of these pastors as, as they continue to lead on into a story that is yet untold in terms of how long that ministry will last here. So I'll turn to Bob and ask him to lead us in prayer. Join me as we uh, pray together. Father, we know that you are not uh, circumscribed by time and space as we are, yet you've allowed us to enjoy these moments in our lives and in the history of uh, Wes and Cindy and John and Andrew as they have come to our community and become a part of us, been woven into the cloth of Houghton and the Houghton Wesleyan Church, thank you that we have them. Thank you that their ministry has been uh, with us for these 16 years. Uh, Lord, we look back over that ministry and rejoice at uh, what you have done in all of our lives uh, during that time as we have uh, worked together for your kingdom in this place. Now, Father, we look forward in time to what you will do among us as we continue to commit ourselves to you and to this ministry here. Thank you for Wes and Cindy and for the many things they do for us, but mostly for the kind of people they are and the kind of uh, kingdom people that, uh, that they are in our community, showing us the way that we should go in, uh, in our lives here. We pray that you'll bless them in the future and bless us as we continue to work together for you here. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and ask that all God's people say, Amen. Amen.
Join with me in the prayer of confession as printed in your bulletin. Let us pray together. Eternal God, our judge and redeemer, we confess that we have tried to hide from you, for we have done wrong. We have lived for ourselves and apart from you. We have turned from our neighbors and refused to bear the burdens of others. We have ignored the pain of the world and passed by the hungry, the poor, and the oppressed. In your great mercy, forgive our sins and free us from selfishness, that we may choose your will and obey your commandments through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Our Old Testament scripture reading for today is found in Numbers 22, verses 21 through 35. Numbers 22, verses 21 through 35. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under Balaam, and he was very angry and beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make, me beat you, make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low, and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please stand and join in singing the doxology as the ushers come forward to receive our tithes and offerings.
you have blessed us in so many ways. Daily, you provide for our needs. For this, we are truly grateful. Today, as we give our tithes and offerings, may we do so with great joy and thanksgiving. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God, whom we celebrate, calls us to, to come to him in praise and adoration and with our burdens. This morning, you, you may have a, a burden about something in your life, perhaps something in a friend, or family member, maybe just sense a burden about something in the world. And if you would like to use the altar as a place where you come and and unburden your heart to God. Please join me. Father, we celebrate your greatness today, that you are the almighty God, that you have created us to be in relationship with you, and that you rule over 
all the earth. And that your love for us reaches down into this world through your Son. We thank you. We thank you for all of the reasons we have to celebrate you and to rejoice in you. And we give you praise and honor and glory for who you are and for what you have done. We thank you that you are involved in every one of our lives. You care about everything that we care about and even more than we do. You know every struggle we face. You know every sin that we wrestle with. You know every hurt and pain that is deep within us. You know the physical struggles we have and the emotional and mental struggles. And you know the relational difficulties that we have created ourselves or have been thrust upon us. You know our wrestling about the future. You know our wrestling about the past. Father, we lay every burden at your feet. We know that you hear us. We know that you are at work even when we cannot see it. Father, we pray for this world in which we live. We are burdened by the violence and the greed and the willingness of human beings to callously hurt one another. Forgive us. And let your people stand tall with a clear message of grace and love and mercy through Christ. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. We thank you for being involved in our lives in answering our prayers and for doing what you know is best. We offer this prayer as we do all of our prayers in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and our returning King, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our New Testament reading today is from 2 Peter chapter 2. We'll be reading the entire chapter, all 22 verses. 2 Peter chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. 
bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. They mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. This is the word of the Lord.
Father, we pray that you would indeed shape our hearts into the image of Christ. It is in his name that we ask this, in the power of your word. Amen. Please be seated. It does seem hard to believe that we've been here for more than 16 years. And I was pondering that recently and thinking about the changes in the world since we came. And I realized I I had never sent an email until after we moved here. And much less sent a text message or, you know, got on Facebook or tweeted. Uh, You know, the world has changed a lot in the 16 years. I think one of the things we might say about the changing of the world is it feels, at least, it feels sometimes that the opposition to the church is squeezing us just a little bit more. That, that, the, that the, the evil one is using culture and society to, to push us and to enslave us and, and to get to us more than ever. If I were to ask you, what do you think is the greatest threat to the church? I suspect we would get a lot of answers. If I, if I base the, the answers and the poll on the emails I receive or the websites I get directed to or conversations I overhear, I suspect that the answers to what's the greatest threat to the church would be things like Islam, uh, ruthless dictators and nations of the world. Secularism, the government. We might, we might think about things like the, some of the, the uh, things that bother us about the education system, teaching evolution, the whole idea of, of the growth of atheism. Some people might think the American Civil Liberties Union is, is a threat to the church. Depending on your perspective and your experiences and, and the things that, have, that you have encountered in your life, you probably would have a different answer. But there are two things that I, I'm pretty certain of. One is that the opposition the church faces is really not new. It's something that's been going on a long, long time. And the second thing is that I'm convinced that the greatest threat to the church is not something outside the church, but what goes on in the church. I think if the evil one can create a scenario in the church where, where we, we lose our mission and, and we lose our focus and we get tied up with peripheral things, and we begin to rely on ourselves instead of the power of the Holy Spirit, then the church becomes weak and ineffectual and our witness crumbles and the kingdom suffers. It seems to me that this is the issue that Peter's addressing in this second chapter of his second letter. He's writing to a group of people who are are facing not so much persecution from the outside, that was more the focus of his first letter, but false teachers on the inside. People who are, are creating an atmosphere in the church where they're denying Christ. And once you begin to deny Christ, then all that it means to follow Christ 
quickly follows. And these false teachers have, have created this atmosphere in the church where they're, they, they are, they're leading people astray. Now, as you, as you walk through this chapter, he, he gives us many examples of, of the kind of people that these false teachers are. And they're, they're pretty graphic and pretty disturbing. He talks about people who are very who are greedy. And that was his point about bringing Balaam into the story. You know, Balaam is willing to be paid to curse Israel. And, and his donkey, as we saw in the story we read earlier, uh, prevents him from, from harm. But Balaam, nevertheless, goes right on in and he's willing to take money in order to, to curse God's people. And he talks about uh, the, these uh, deceivers have, are engaged in all kinds of sexual morality. They, 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 they don't adhere to the authority that, that has been established. And, and the worst part of it is their behavior in denying Christ and denying what it means to be a follower of Christ is not just about their own condition, but they're doing everything in their power to drag everyone else down they possibly can. Verse 18 tells us that they are especially interested in targeting those who are new to the faith. And they want these people who are most vulnerable because that's who the evil one attacks. The evil one knows that people who are new to the faith don't have the grounding and they are so susceptible. And that's their target. And they are dragging people away. The hard thing for us is that whether you're talking about things from inside the church or outside, the hard thing is recognizing and, and coming to grips with the fact that it appears to us that, that the deceivers of this world in the church and outside the church, that the deceivers seem to be gaining power and influence. When you look at, at, at who gets recognition in the world, it's usually not Christians. When you look at who is, who is put down, it usually is Christians. And after a while of watching this happen and, and seemingly God being silent about it, you begin to despair. And you begin to lose hope. And I think that's what's happening to the people that Peter writes this letter to. They're beginning to lose hope. And when you lose hope, you make bad choices. I suspect that one of the issues that, that is created out of their, of their despair and their lack of hope because they see these people getting away with all of this is that they start thinking, what's the point? If you can't beat them, join them. Why are we, doing, why are we putting ourselves through all of this? Why, why give up everything? Why sacrifice? Why surrender? Look what it's getting us and look what, what they're doing is getting them. And we're tempted to give in. Now, you might say, well, you read this list, you think, well, that certainly wouldn't describe me or anything, you know, really that I'm wrestling with. And that's probably true. And they probably wouldn't either. But the disturbing thing is when you get to the last few verses of this chapter, and he in essence says, some of these deceivers used to be right with Christ, and now they're not. Now, you know, that automatically brings up the big discussion of, you know, theology of, you know, between Arminians and Wesleyans and or Arminians and Calvinists, and how, how are you going to how you reconcile that? Because you have you have some some people who believe very strongly that once you have once you have opened your heart to Christ, Christ keeps you secure, and and 
You can't, you can't get out of that. And there are other people who believe that you make a decision for Christ, but we always have the free will to make decisions to not follow Christ. And the reality is, if we're really honest about it, the reason those two theologies sort of coexist is because they're both true. It's the paradox of the scriptures that we talked about a few months ago. The scriptures talk to us over and over again about our security in Christ. And I suspect that that for some of us, we don't embrace that enough. But it also talks to us about the fact that it has many examples of people who have followed Christ and chosen to, to reject Christ. And I think Peter's point is not to try to make some theological uh, point here, but rather to say, whichever way you see that, be careful. Because human beings are susceptible to the evil one. And we can end up in places a little bit at a time that we would have never dreamed possible. Keep on your guard. Be careful. And of course, the best defense to falling away is moving forward. Keep your eyes on Christ. Because the truth is, we are all susceptible. We're all susceptible to the underlying underlying belief system that these false teachers live with. This idea of denying Christ is often more about how we live than about what we believe. And we so easily can fall into the trap of believing that, that being a follower of Jesus is about what we do. And we try to do things in our own power instead of the power of the Holy Spirit. Wesley Duell, who's written many books on prayer and other subjects, says that Satan really doesn't get all that upset about a lot of our Christian work. He doesn't mind at all if we are zealous about doing things for Christ, as long as he can convince us to do it in our power instead of the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, you know we're in trouble when we're trying to do more for God than we we can saturate with prayer. And it is a stumbling block for us. You know, we get self-esteem by what we do. We get value and worth by what we do. And, and we can quickly run ahead of the Holy Spirit and think it's really about what we accomplish instead of what the Holy Spirit accomplishes through us. I think we're susceptible to, to, to turning from Christ when we become arrogant about the truth. And it's hard because we believe the foundation of, of Christianity is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we are convinced that the only way to the Father is through Jesus. And we preach that and we believe that. But if we aren't careful, that belief can turn into arrogance with other people who disagree with us. And instead of taking a stand, we vilify them. And we attack them. There's an article on CNN this week that some leaders in the evangelical church wrote. It was on the front page, which kind of surprised me. But it was all about trying to encourage Christians to tone down the language. To stop name-calling with our opponents. And instead to, to speak the truth in love. Rather than in bitterness and in vitriolic language. 
When we get arrogant about the truth, we, we begin mistreating people. And we, we, our main concern is pounding the truth into them instead of helping them open their hearts to Jesus. You know, underlying all of this is self-centeredness. These false teachers believe that, that, that their life is primarily about them. And the gospel teaches us that our lives are primarily about God. And how easily we slide away from that. And, and it all becomes about me, what I like, what I want, what I experience. And Christ sort of gets pushed to the side. In verse 19, Peter talks to them about the fact that they are subject to the one who is master over them. And as I've thought about that, he says, you know, we're, we're all subject to the thing that's mastering us. And, and it made me wonder, what exactly is mastering us? What is it that masters me? And I, for the next 60 seconds, I'd like for us just to think about and ponder this question in silence. What masters me? Father, give us eyes to see the truth about what masters us, what pulls at us to draw our attention away from you. And give us grace to let you be our master. Amen. It's because Peter knows what can happen when we lose hope that he says to the people to whom he's writing this letter, I want to, I want to give you some hope. This letter, this letter, and particularly this chapter, is really not addressed to the false teachers. It's addressed to the rest of the church, the church that's following Christ, the church that's, that's trying to be the Christians that, that Christ created them to be. The people who are struggling with hope. And he says, you have hope. And here's why God is faithful. God keeps his promises. And the promises of God in this context are like two sides of a coin. On the one, hand, on the one side, you have God's faithful promises to be just toward the wicked. Now, we don't like talking a lot about that. We don't... I know people who simply don't read the Old Testament because they don't like reading about the judgment of God and the punishment of God for sin. But the reality is it is true. Not just in the Old Testament, but the New Testament. Our God is just. And, and don't we want him to be just? I mean, don't we want a society and a culture that, that is just? Don't we want people who, who mistreat children to face the consequences of that? Don't we want people who, who hurt deeply other people to face the consequences of that? 
Don't we want people who, who start civil wars and, and demand all kinds of atrocities on humanity to, to pay for those crimes? We want justice. Our justice is flawed, but God's is perfect. And Peter says, our God is just. And even though it seems like he's silent about the evil in the world, he's not. And I'll prove it to you. Let's look back at the Old Testament, he says. Just take Genesis. Let's just, take, let's just pull three stories out of Genesis. And he talks about angels that, are, that have been sent to hell. And he talks about the flood. And he talks about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. We're pretty familiar with the flood story. The people are so wicked that God says, we've got to start this all over again. And we're pretty familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah. The people of that city are so wicked that, and they're dragging people into their wickedness that he has to put an end to it. We might not be as familiar with the story, the idea about the angels being punished and sent to hell. And there's a lot of speculation about what Peter means. But more than likely, it's a reference back to Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood. And it says in the beginning of that chapter that, that the, the sons of God married the daughters of men. And more than likely, and again, this is you know, a little bit of speculation, but Jewish, Jewish tradition is that the sons of God are angelic beings. They're the angels who decided to part with Satan and turn on God. And a part of, of their evil and their wickedness was to marry and to corrupt the people on earth. And it's out of that corruption that the flood comes. And Peter says, if, if God punished the ungodly in the past, you can guarantee you he's going to hold accountable the deceivers in the present. And we may not see that, that punishment now. We may not see the justice as we live, but eternally it's going to come. And it's a part of, of who God is and what God has promised. And, and we feel a sense of hope that God is just, that he's not ignoring the evil in the world, that he's not letting it go, that he doesn't care. His silence is not licensed for people to do whatever they want, nor is it apathy toward the evil in the world. We just have to trust his timing. But God is just. Now, it's important, I think, to to understand that when we're talking about this justice that God is going to to send on people, that we're talking about people who, who know God and have chosen to reject God. These are people who have chosen evil. They're not innocent bystanders. They're not people who, who didn't have a choice in the matter. These are people who, who have chosen the way of evil. And, they are, and their goal is to drag as many people into evil as possible. And it may, you know, we, may, we, we might wonder, well, you know, what exactly is the cutoff point here? And I don't know the answer to that. Which is why we go back to be careful about your walk. Stay close to Christ in your journey. But I don't think he's talking here about, you know, that we we might sin. Because we all sin. But the desire of our heart is for God. And the desire of their heart is for wickedness and evil. I mean, he says, you know, God, he rescued Lot. And he, he says, Lot's righteous. You read the story, you don't get that picture. 
You know, when you read the story of, of, of Lot, you have compromise after compromise after compromise that gets him into the situation he's in in Sodom in the middle of this wickedness. And yet, when push comes to shove, Lot stands up and says, I really am for Yahweh. And he's rescued. And that's the other side of the coin. Is that God is not only faithful to be just, God is also faithful to rescue the godly from our trials. And when we think about God rescuing us from trials, we think he's going to remove the trials from our lives. But when Peter says God knows how to rescue us in our trials, he's not saying, telling us that we will, he's going to eliminate difficulties. Jesus said to his disciples, if they rejected me, they're going to reject you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. You need to expect this. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. And in fact, followers of Christ tend to have more trouble than people who don't follow Christ. It's seemingly, at least, in this world. More opposition from the evil one. So, rescuing us from trials doesn't mean eliminating the trials. It means that God is going to be faithful to us. And that God is going to reward us. And he's going to bring us through the trials to his eternal end. Just as he rescues Noah and his family, just as he rescues Lot, God is going to rescue. God is, going, God is faithful to those whose hearts are turned to him. What does it mean to be godly? To be rescued? Well, Jesus prays in the prayer, deliver us from evil. And that word deliver, same word that he uses here in Second Peter to rescue. Lord, our prayer is that you would bring us through the evil that we face in this world. That you would give us strength to stand tall in the midst of the difficulties that we're facing. It's the same word that God uses to describe, or the scripture uses to describe God bringing his people out of slavery and rescuing them from the Assyrians and, and rescuing them from, the, from their enemies. And it's all because of God's grace and mercy. Not because Israel is, is so wonderful at following God, but because God loves them. And because the desire of their heart, at least for a period of time, is to follow him. So to be godly, is to be the opposite of what we see in, in, in these false teachers. It's to put Christ first. It's to be willing to surrender and sacrifice our will for what God desires in us. It's about being willing to acknowledge that we need help. That we need to be rescued. That we cannot do this on our own. And it is being will, it's willing to be vulnerable in whatever way God chooses to rescue us. Even if that rescue is, feels like silence while we live out our days on this earth. Someone was telling me about a family member that was out in a sailboat one day and it broke down and, and they were stuck. And they sent a helicopter to rescue them because the waves were starting to threaten to capsize the boat. When the helicopter let, was trying to let down something to help them, but the mast of the sailboat was in the way and they couldn't, they couldn't rescue them. And so the only thing they could do was to tell the guy in the boat, you've got to jump into the water. 
It took them quite a while to convince him to jump into these choppy seas. That looked a lot more dangerous and a lot more of a problem than staying in the boat. But the reality was if he stayed in the boat, it was going down. And eventually they convinced him to jump into the water and they were able to let down the buoy and to rescue him. And we have to have a certain willingness to be vulnerable, to let God rescue us in the way that he knows is best. And that will probably mean enduring silence and enduring questions and and, and wondering what in the world God is doing or not doing. But because we believe God doesn't forget his promises, we trust him. What often appears to us as silence is God's patience, is God's concern and compassion. And the people of God who are on the road with God are are people who have that same sense of patience and compassion even with wickedness, with people who are struggling with wickedness and evil and who oppose us. And we stand up to them and, and, and we stand up for the truth. But when we, when we understand the road down which people are headed and that they are going to face the justice of God, instead of us going, finally, way to go, God, it breaks our hearts. It breaks our hearts to think that, that people are going to end up in eternal punishment and face the eternal justice of God. It doesn't cause us to celebrate. It causes us to weep and to mourn because we care about people. It's as Jesus mourning over and weeping over Jerusalem in those last days of his life and knowing that the people of that city are going to put him on a cross He weeps for them. He laments for them because of the decisions they're making. And we weep and lament for the decisions that people make that brings them face to face with the justice of Almighty God. It's hard to have hope sometimes when the world seems so out of control. When it seems as though evil and wickedness and and deception is gaining instead of losing. And it feels as though the pressure on God's people, whether that's from outside the church or inside the church, it feels as though it's tightening every day. But we have hope because we know that we worship the one who keeps his promises. And we know he keeps his promises because the tomb is empty. Because Jesus is risen. And because Jesus is risen, God wins. And everyone who is with God is swept into the victory. So in the midst of the silence, in the midst of the questions and the wondering, can we trust that God is in control. Can we trust that God is good 
and that God is just and that God keeps his promises to us and to everyone. Heavenly Father, we wrestle with the silence and the darkness. Today, give us a new glimpse of hope through the resurrected Christ. Give us grace to be godly people who love you and who love others, who stand for your truth in a world that stands for everything but. Fill us with your grace. And give us your hope through the mercy and the strength of Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. I want to invite you as we prepare to go forth to live for Christ to take your hymnals and turn to hymn number 319. Stand as we sing together.
Receive your benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.